Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. And I'm joined by Andrew Bartram in Cambridge in the UK. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Simon. and It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've been talking about making a podcast for for a while and Mm. we've been putting it off and putting it off and thinking of lots of things that uh, we need to sort out before we actually start doing it. But it's... It's it's now it's 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 now actually happening. So um, we shall get on with it. I think the um, first thing I think we should talk about is what is this podcast? What's it about? Why are we here? Um, and from my side of things, um, I'm a reasonably experienced photographer. I started off in film. Um, I then did absolutely nothing at all for many years and got back into photography about four years ago with uh, digital. I then uh, fell in love with putting old lenses on a digital camera. And last year, got together with a few guys um, uh, from the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses. Um, in particular, Carl Havens and Johnny Sisson, and we put a podcast together called the Classic Lenses Podcast, and we've been doing that ever since. But it's been a case that um, talking about and using old lenses uh, reignited my uh, interest in film, and from that, I started to shoot film again. I then started to shoot medium format, and I just became slightly obsessed by just about any kind of film and large format seems to be, oh, it's got to be the best, hasn't it? Because it's bigger. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, large format came into my life and the reason why it came into my life was because, uh, my day job is I'm actually a dealer in photographic equipment and I've got a bit of a weakness for trying to buy things that I haven't tried before and uh, an opportunity came along for me to buy a uh, half frame, not half frame, um, half plate, a half plate. A half uh, frame really isn't that big. No, it's not. <laughs> just... no. um, but it was a, a half plate uh, wooden camera uh, with a couple of uh, barrel lenses and a Thornton Picard shutter. And uh, I, I, I bought it and I just fell in love with the thing. I had no idea how to use it. Um, it had some mahogany film backs. Um, I realized quite quickly that um, buying film for, for, for that size was damned expensive and the range of film available to me was, uh, was, was, was pretty small. So uh, I then investigated things further um, I then managed to uh, go to an auction where there was quite a few large format cameras and I picked up a Meridian 45B, which is uh, uh, an American camera made in New York in about 1949, 1950. And I was just completely hooked. Um, I hadn't actually shot a photograph at this point, um, but I just I just loved the idea of actually using these large cameras that uh, it, it takes a a long time to actually take take a photograph. Uh, but one thing I, I realized very, very quickly uh, was that um, as as much as I got a reasonable amount of experience back in the days when I used to shoot film and, uh, and a reasonable amount of experience in the, the more recent times with digital, I found that when actually I went out with a large format camera, I felt like I knew absolutely nothing. Um, even to the point when I actually bought the, uh, the Meridian camera, I had to ask somebody, 
how do you put film in that? So I couldn't actually work out how you actually took a photograph with one of these large view cameras, as they're called. Um, and so uh, I got more involved with a, with, a, with a few forums and things like that. And I started to listen to Andrew Bartram whenever, whenever he appeared on things. And it seemed to me like it might be a good idea if we do another podcast. And, uh, and my co-host knows a lot about uh, large format photography so perhaps I might learn something about large format photography and perhaps um, help introduce people that are, that are curious about it but don't really understand it and are afraid to ask um, so so really my my job on this podcast is to ask all the stupid questions um, so that, that other people don't have to and Andrew who knows absolutely everything about oh, large format it. photography <laughs> <laughs> is uh is going to be able to help out on that so um so here's andrew and he's going to teach us all about large format photography <laughs> dear me well uh, hello and and well what can i say well thanks for asking me to get involved in this uh simon it's uh it, i did um and ah about it because obviously you know we the week like you we have a weekly commitment to other podcasts and if i call you cory halfway through i do apologize <laughs> Um, but you know you don't sound like him. Uh, so large format. Well, you see, I'm. I think this. If we can go on a voyage of discovery together over the coming months, because at the moment the aim is to put this out monthly. We'll see how we go, but let's just say monthly for the time being. If we can go on a voyage of discovery together uh, and get some interesting guests on, and learn, both of us can learn loads. I'm sure. Uh, but I, I mean, I, my background is probably most folks would know if they've listened to me waffling on elsewhere is 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 in film. I've never really moved away from film. Well, never moved away from film. I've been printing in the darkroom for since I was 18, 35 years ago or so. Um, and for many years, it was just 35 mil, 120 in the last 20 years. And to be honest large format only in the last five years but like you simon you know once you get hooked by something i tend to want to read about it i tend to want to get involved in the forums i want to meet other people and so you get on this learning curve don't you which took me down a few blind alleys equipment wise i've been on a bit of a journey with with gear which we can perhaps talk about um but uh you know, I can't claim to know everything, Simon. I know you build me up as uh, as being this sort of Gandalf figure, but I'm really not. I can assure you. So, but we can talk about it. You know, we can. You know, there's a lot of interest out there in large format photography. You know, I think it's been stimulated by certainly by Kickstarters like uh, Intrepid, and I was a backer with the Intrepid project a few years ago, and then we had the Chroma and Terra Pterodactyl uh, multicolored stuff and you know there's there's clearly a big interest you just go onto the onto any of the face the fantastic facebook groups there are and the interest is phenomenal but i think if we can help people you know and talk uh, not talk down to folks if we can um, answer the basic questions as well as get involved in the more detailed stuff and have some interesting guests along i think we can go on a really interesting journey together Simon. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. And I think uh, we've, 
been we've talked a few times about what this first show is going to be about and we've settled on something of a uh, large format 101 uh, what what is large format what's it about uh, why do we do it what's the advantages the disadvantages and, and things like that so it's effectively an introduction into uh, large formats so uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be largely a, a question and answer session and, uh, and <laughs> it's going to be pretty obvious i'm the one that's going to be asking the questions on this um so uh, i think we'll drop straight into the uh, the first question uh, which is what is large format photography <laughs> well i <laughs> i really like the approach that Nick and Graham have on their homemade camera podcast time for a quick shout out for one of my favorite other podcasts because they seem to ask really simple questions and actually when you start delving into it the questions are deceptively simple and simple questions can be uh, turn out to be not so simple but in this case I think do we have to define large format as um you know, by its size, is I think that has to be the way, doesn't it? So, um, and and I'm, I made a few notes, and the first view cameras came in a variety of sizes, and we'll just use view cameras at the moment for large, just call a view camera a large format camera. Uh, early models included eight by ten, which we're of course familiar with. So that's the film size, the dimension of eight inches by ten inches, and the four by five, uh, which is quite common. Other sizes would have included 11 by 14, 16 by 20. I have a couple of friends who are making 16 by 20 uh, view cameras. Uh, six and a half by eight and a half. That's plate size. So that's if you've heard the term plate camera, that would be six and a half by eight and a half inches. Simon, you mentioned a half plate camera. Mm -hmm which is four and a half inches by five and a half. So that's not so different, is it, from four by five? No, it's just like but, next size that, up, isn't it, really? Just, yes. And then three and a quarter by four and a quarter, quarter plate. So it's going to be something other than 120, I guess. So if, you have, if you're shooting 120 uh, film, you can be shooting six by six format or up to six by 17 on a roll. But even though you've got quite a bit of real estate on 6x17, really we're talking large format, I would think then at 4x5 and above inches, unless someone's going to shout at me and say, no, you're completely wrong. Well, there is a, a, an anomaly size, and well, there's, there's lots of different sizes, but you get those baby speed graphics as well, don't oh, you? Oh, you do, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah but what, what? Three hmm. and a quarter, is that by four and a quarter, something like that? But are they, is that still a, yeah, I guess that would be considered large format. It's, it's, certainly, it's on the periphery. I mean, it, it looks like a large format camera. <laughs> so. I, I was also going to say anything that, would another definition be anything that takes sheet film? Is there any, are there any smaller format cameras that take sheet film? I can't think of I any. can't think of any 35 millimeter cameras unless you, unless you're a pinhole photographer and then you might be cutting up small bits of film to go in matchboxes. But then you couldn't really call that large format, could you? No, no. So, yeah, let's 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 go with with, with sheet film and looking like a looking like a view camera. And by the way, what is what a view whatever whatever that is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what's a view camera? Well, I think it's probably a generic term for a camera that shoots large format film, and it can but it can be um, uh, it, historically you would think of a big wooden Thornton Packard camera with a man with a top hat and a big 
big. Uh, I don't know why I said top hat. Why would he have a top hat? That's likely to get away, get in the way of when he goes under the dark cloth. Yeah, he, well, so, he'll, he'll take his top hat and hand that to a servant, and then put himself under the dark cloth. But I think when we, if we use the term view camera, uh, we're really talking a sort of fairly generic term for a large format uh, camera. I think. Yeah, sounds. I mean, it's ultimately. Um, I I take the the view. Uh, sorry for the pun. Um, <laughs> that's it, it's looking at you're looking at a ground glass screen, which is inverted. Um, uh, for me, that's that's a, that's a view camera. Uh, yeah, I have a very uh, limited knowledge of these subjects. So. But within that, you'd have studio view cameras, and you know, ones that were designed to be operated in the studio. There may be certain designs, and ones that then became usable in the field um but but yeah you're right i mean it's something that's you know i suppose linking it back to pinhole photography the first view cameras would have been camera obscuras so you're talking about a box a space with them air in it with some kind of lens and an inverted image on the other side that you can either see through a piece of ground glass or you can put a in in you can put paper in and just expose directly onto it. So it's, but being able to view the image, I think probably is where the term came from, but maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I think I actually probably took you a little bit away from uh, defining uh, large format because you were, you were talking about film and things like that. Mm. But of course, filming is, is, is just where we're at today in terms of development, yeah. but there are lots yeah. of other ways of uh, producing images with large format. Yes. Well, Plate cameras, of course, I think that's probably where the, we we, we touched on plate cameras and quarter plate cameras. I had a, um, you know, you could you could use glass plates and they could either be coated in the field in a darkroom tent with some noxious fumes that probably involved, um, oh, forget what the, uh, the nasty stuff is that would have, would have made you poorly if you spent too much time inhaling it. But anyway, you could coat your glass plates and use those while they were still wet. So you coat them with an emulsion and use those while they're still wet. And then later we moved on to dry plates and then into film. So it, I did have a camera and I foolishly sold it. And it was a box camera that had lots of glass plate holders and it held 12. And I'd, it was probably half plate size and these 12 plates you'd ex you'd make an exposure then you turn a dial on the side of the camera and the plate fell forward hopefully not breaking and then you had another plate behind it there so i think they would have been for dry dry plates of um, uh, glass that was coated with some emulsion which then dried and you used it like a film so yeah glass uh, would have been is that what you were thinking of simon yeah yeah absolutely Good. <laughs> yeah, so glass and then film. What else do you want to know from my vast depth of knowledge? <laughs> um, well, one of the, one of the, the uh, as I said, there, there, there are certain things that as a, as, a, as a newcomer to large format photography uh, yeah. that weren't immediately obvious to me. Yeah. And um, the, the first one was uh, when, I, when I, I was looking at this Meridian 
uh, camera, mm-hmm. which I eventually bought. And I had to speak to the to the experts at the auction. I, I, I felt a little bit silly asking him this question, but I, I had to ask it. And he goes, how do you take a photograph with it? With it? How, where, where does the film go? Um, so I'm just wondering mm. if you want to talk about the process there. Yeah. So there's you get into large format photography and suddenly you're you're a world away from the familiar. You if you've been using film for any length of time, you'd have almost certainly started with 35 millimeter uh, film, which produces a uh, an image which is ooh, forget the size, but you'd you'd be familiar with is it 24 by 36 something something of that order. Um, so you'll be familiar with films in a cassette. Uh, large, it, then you then you'll get baffled by terms like roll film and go on a voyage of discovery about what exactly is roll film and you discover that you can still buy this stuff which is a, a larger bit more larger real estate on paper backing and then people start talking to you about large format and then you start hearing things about ground glass and Fresnel screens and double dark slides and all kinds of other witchcraft that you um that you immediately start googling and then you get confused over lenses and shutters and so on so what's the process well the process is to uh, the film comes in sheets so the the advantages of using sheet film is that you can uh, pro if you want to you can process each sheet individually uh, if and we can perhaps come on to that in future shows about you know getting into development technique techniques and zone systems but you're using sheet film which you have to um, buy a box of so you can go to Ilford or Foma Pan or uh, I was going to say Kodak I don't think you can now can you Kodak? I think, I think yeah. they do yeah you can get Porter and stuff oh like yeah that. of course you can yeah. yeah yeah so you can go you can go and buy you buy a box of let's let's say we're shooting four by five films so you buy you've got you've got your camera and you've got your lens we can come on to talk about cameras and lenses but so the process is in in the dark because most film that you'll be using will be panchromatic, which means it's sensitive to all of the visible light spectrum. So you need to load your film into something, and that something is called a double dark slide. And if you Google double dark slide, you come you'll you'll see exactly what we're talking about. So it's a it's a film holder in effect, and in the dark you load two sheets of film, one on either side into this double dark slide and uh, you can then turn your light on and what's stopping your film exposing is the dark slides and the idea is that you put this dark slide in your camera and we can come on to that in a moment and you pull the physical slide or the dark slide out exposing the film to the light and when you've given the film sufficient exposure you push the dark slide back you take the whole double dark slide out of the camera turn it round and put it back in your camera and make your second exposure. But the process would be setting your camera up, uh, getting some idea of the scene in front of you in terms of lens selection and composition. Uh, you would um, uh, most most lenses allow you to fully open up the lens for viewing, so you have a little a little switch on the lens which you click over. And it opens it up, um, and you can just open it up to the widest aperture. 
And then you go under, you, you, you don't have the dark slide in at this point, but you've got a, um, uh, an, an image being projected upside down onto a ground glass screen. And normally you have to use a, a cloth or some people use a T-shirt um, or, or a, 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 a other fancy types of dark cloths to go and view this image. You'd have seen these old photographers going under their dark cloth, holding up a magnesium flash bar. <laughs> saying, smile, please. Uh, so you're, you're doing that. So you're outside looking foolish in public under a dark cloth, looking at an inverted image on a ground glass screen. And when you're completely happy with your image, and there lies a subject in itself, a podcast in itself, when you're completely happy with the image, then you're putting your film in into the same plane. You're normally just pulling back the glass and inserting the dark slide under the glass and it's held in under pressure by the by the uh, ground glass assembly at the back, and then you take your uh, you take your dark slide out, and make your exposure. I mean that's all very very simple, but you you know you've in in there you've got lens choice, you've got uh, composition, uh, you've got um, setting up the camera to give you the kind of effects you want, the sort of depth of field you want. And that's, that's the beauty of large format cameras. Uh, they are very, very flexible in what you can achieve with the end result, albeit a bit cumbersome. Now, it's, it's that flexibility that um, I love and also, also perplexes me at the same time mm. um, because you've got a, a range of movements uh, yeah. that, that are available to you. So um, it, using smaller format cameras, um, I've occasionally used a, a shift lens or uh, a lens that uh, also allows to tilt, um, which are, are useful for, uh, well, they were generally made for architectural photography, uh, certainly in the days before Photoshop. So you could, could uh, correct um, the angles of buildings because you get these things called converging verticals when you use a wide angle lens to take a photograph of some tall buildings and still have the street uh, within within the shot um, these days with a digital camera uh, a lot of people will just correct that within photoshop uh, but back in the day uh, when you were shooting film that wasn't an option um, so you would uh, apply some correction with the with the lens mm. itself by shifting it or tilting it or whatever um, and I say that's one of the reasons, but the, the other reason, which is, I, I guess, is a more modern phenomena. Well, who knows? There's, there's nothing new in photography, um, but uh, there's also the ability to use um, tilt in particular uh, to create, I think they're called dioramas, I think they're called, where, where you can... Um, put the plane of focus in say the center of the image running horizontally and blur the top of the image and blur the bottom of the image out to make uh, if you're taking the shot for the right angle um, usually looking downwards uh, you can create little people uh, <laughs> out of a everyday scene um, and those are things that I'm not sure if people with large format you know if, if large format photographers are far too serious to take uh, diorama uh, type pictures but you've got a huge range of uh, movement in in just about every direction and movable backs and things yeah. like that so this is this gets to the point where it gets quite quite complex and there are lots of ways to completely mess your shot up well i think at, at the very basic level let's let's think about what a what a camera is most of us will be used to using some kind of box and, and i use that term quite loosely but i mean what, what i'm talking about there is a, a 
some film and then an airspace and then a lens. And the film and the lens would be parallel to each other. And so as you either move the lens closer to the film or away from the film, either just through normal focusing or with a, if it's a, a twin lens reflex, which effectively is a box within a box sliding in and out, or uh, something like my RB or RZ67 cameras. See, you see what I said there? It's RZ67, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't going to mention that, but yeah, I'm glad you caught yourself on that one. Well done. <laughs> Spending far too much time with Americans. <laughs> so there, there you're, you're, again, you're moving the lens parallel to the film all the time. And so you're, people will be familiar with terms like depth of field. And generally speaking, it's the area of apparent sharpness that we're all happy with. Um, you'll have your definite point of focus and then there'll be an area that is before the point of focus and an area after. And normally that's like a one third, two thirds, or like a third of the way into this plane of focus would be your fixed point of focus. And then acceptable sharpness would come like a third before and two thirds after. That's roughly it. And we know that we can change that. Um, that if you've played around with photography for a while, you'll know that you can alter that depth of acceptable focus or depth of field by changing the aperture on your camera. So if you open it to a uh, small number like f2.5 or 1.8, like you guys on the classic lenses like to do all the time, you end up with a very small area of acceptable focus. And conversely, if you set your aperture down to on most 35 millimeter cameras probably only goes down to 16 or so f16 or 22 but with a large format camera you can go all the way down to probably f64 in many cases then you're getting a much bigger depth of focus but again remember we're just talking about parallel um, parallel planes between the film and the uh, and the lens so the beauty that you hinted at um, a little bit there, Simon, with, with view cameras is, is yes, certainly the, the the range of movements on the stand, the front and rear standards, and I'm conscious that we haven't defined those terms yet. But I think the 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 the, the defining thing about the about the view camera, and we haven't just really defined what we mean by view camera, uh, is um, is that you you can move away from that parallel range of depth of field by moving the front panel the front standards as it's called where the lens sits and you can extend depth of field to instead of making it parallel you can turn it into a sort of cone shape for want of better description and there are some very technical uh, videos you can find on on youtube which are very very helpful which uh, tells you how to use a studio camera studio view camera and to photograph, say, a, a cardboard box and ensure that every single side of it is sharply in focus by using movements on the camera. So very typically, if I'm shooting landscape, which is largely what I do with my large format camera, then most of the time, the only adjustment I'm making is taking the, uh, the front element or the front standard of the camera where the, where, where the lens is mounted and I'm just tilting it, and that's the term, so it's tilting it forward by no more than one to three degrees. I know it's that amount because I once had a, 
a, a technical monorail camera and it had degree markings on and it was always about three degrees. And then if with, with some careful refocusing, I'm getting everything in focus from the blade of grass under my nose to the power lines on the far horizon. Now that does come at a cost because the plane of focus is no longer just uh, parallel, it, it changes shape. So if you've got like a tree or a power line or a post in the near foreground coming up through the middle of your composition, you will find almost certainly that the top of it is is out of focus because the, the, the no longer have you got you've, you've because you've tilted the front standard forward you've effectively moved away from this parallel depth of field to something um, that is 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 wedge like not i said cone before but it's probably more like a wedge going away from the from the camera so if you've got something tall going through your composition that can be a problem and you may overcome it by then stopping the lens down to f64 and hoping for the best so you, you, your camera gives you a multitude of movements and, we've, you know, and just tilting it forward and altering the depth of field is probably the most fundamental, Simon. Yeah, I, I realised that uh, you, were, you were telling me off in, uh, through part, part of that by jumping ahead of the members. We haven't really, as you say, uh, spoken about the, the, the components of, uh, no. of, of the camera. And uh, I've gone straight to the sexy stuff, haven't I? Which is, you have, that's, yeah. That's, that's my youth, no, youthful no, exuberance there. No, for, no foreplay and straight in. Yeah. yeah, so let's 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 wind things back a little bit then, and uh, talk about componentry. Uh, what what makes up a uh, a view camera? And of course, there are there are different types of view cameras. Uh, we say there's uh, um, field cameras and uh, monorail cameras, for instance. Yeah. Well, monorail cameras. I had a monorail camera, and and, and I loved it. I had a what a Sinar camera, S I N A R, a Sinar F, and it's extremely uh, extremely modular. If you, if you want ultimate flexibility to be able to do absolutely everything to, if you want a camera that can turn itself inside out, um, then a monorail camera is for you. If you want to do crazy things with shilts, tilts, shilts and tiffs, tilts and shifts, get my teeth in, then a monorail camera is for you. So like, so it, a monorail camera, what is that? Well, you have, you have a standard, uh, uh, where the lens the lens is mounted onto a front standard it's a front panel and the film would be and the ground glass is the rear standard that's what they're called and the rear standard takes the film and the front standard takes the lens and in between those two standards you have bellows now that's much the same as a view as a field camera at that point both a field camera and a monorail camera will both have Front standards and rear standards. The monorail camera is different because those standards are mounted on a on a rail that runs horizontal, and the standards fit onto those rails, and you can move them backwards and forwards on the rail. Uh, the front standard and the rear standard are fully uh, have loads of movement, so you can have uh, you can r rise the lift the standard up, ri rise and drop it down, fall. Um, you, you can you, you can tilt the front standard forward by an insane amount of degrees. You can tilt it back if you want weird out of focus areas. You can take the back standard and you can move that in, in equally as many ways. So you can also focus 
normally with a with a view with a field camera which is a different design it for focusing you're just moving the front standard backwards and forwards with a with a monorail camera you can move you can focus from the back if you if you wish and leave the front uh, static however what so with a monorail camera you've got ultimate flexibility the Sinar is a great system. The bellows are nearly always interchangeable. Why would you want to interchange, take bellows off? Well, if you've got a, a knackered set of bellows and you don't want to repair them, it means you can probably easily replace them. Or if you want to shoot really wide angle lenses, then you know that you have to bring the lens closer to the plane of the film and the bellows start compressing and they'll only compress so far, which would limit the uh, close focusing ability um, uh, of, the, of the camera. And with a wide angle lens, you're going to be squeezing those bellows quite, uh, uh, quite close to get acceptable focus. So you can take those bellows out and fit an alternative style called a bag bellows bag bellows and uh, they're available i had one of those for my sinar camera and they're very very good it means you can start using lenses um, which are extremely wide um, so the equivalent of sort of 15 or 20 millimeter in 35 millimeter terms so 55 60 millimeter in large in four by five the downside of monorail cameras is that they are a bit unwieldy but i wouldn't let that stop you if you want to get into large format photography a Sinar F1 or an F2 uh, are great introductions, particularly if you're not into backpacking up mountains. Because if, if you want to just use your camera around your house or stick it in the back of the car and shoot you know, from the back of your car, then a monorail is perfectly fine. And it's a good, relatively affordable introduction into large format. And I... And in many ways, I wish I'd have kept my Sinar F because it was a great camera. But I, the, the beauty with a Sinar F is that you can keep upgrading it until you have something called a Sinar P. And by that point, you've got metal front standards and metal rear standards, and the whole thing weighs a ton. But it's, it's, a, it's a very sexy-looking beast. So monorail cameras were really used in the studio, but they certainly can be used in the field but they're just not easy to carry around very often. Yeah, I've, I've actually got a, uh, a Sinar F2. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't mention that earlier. And the, and the uh, reason being is uh, I, in, in my day job as a, as a dealer. Um, Drug dealer. I, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing. We know. Uh, you keep Cameron it quiet, lens. but we know what you really do. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you about the cannabis farm they busted in Warboys recently. <laughs> another time <laughs> nothing to do with i could have been your supplier couldn't i you could have, we could have gone into business you're the dealer and I, i'll be the i'll supply the raw materials for you well as a as a camera and lens dealer <laughs> um it, it i i bought this camera because i got it at the right price and yeah. which is pretty much how which I, was cheap for you wasn't it exactly you don't like to you don't like to spend a lot of money do you that that that's that's right i mean that's something that uh, i i'd like to do things on a budget whenever possible um and uh, <laughs> that, yeah that's um, that meridian came to me at a, at a good price and so did the uh, so did the the, the, the Sino, uh with a, um, I think it's got a Sino, Sinoron S uh, lens. I think it's 150 
something. I forget what the aperture is. But so I've, I've only actually used it once. Um, but it, it's a case of... I, I, I love the thing. Um, but... I'm trying to justify keeping it uh, because really I should I should yeah. sell it to help pay the mortgage. But it, it's uh, it's a lovely thing. And now you're just the way you're talking about it and saying you can actually go outside with this camera. Absolutely, yes. Um, it's sort of making me think. You know, perhaps I should just sell something else instead and just leave. leave you know, put it on the uh, to be sold at a later date pile, uh, which is pretty much where it's been now for the last two months. But uh, you see, I, I went through. I, I was on a on my large format journey when I bought the SignArt. And I, I started realizing that actually this thing was, it became far too complicated for what I really needed. Its, re its range of abilities in terms of movements and flexibility was enormous. And it was taking me so long to take a shot. Uh, and it was, in fact, the SignArt system is very, very clever. If you, if you buy all their, get all their instruction manuals, it gives you clever ways of, of setting the angles and, and supposed to be foolproof ways of getting things in focus. And it just blew my mind. So, and I started seeing, and I saw, well, what are those other cameras, the ones that fold completely flat and you can stick in your backpack? That surely sounds a much more sensible approach. And of course, that's what we mean by a field camera. And a field camera folds into a little box generally, generally, not always. So it means that the um, uh, you're confronted with this this small box in my case i mean i have a toyo 45a which is a metal construction and when i pick it out of my pick it up out of my bag it's this it's this sort of square box thing that isn't very big and you press a button on the front and you pull you the way you open these things up as you pull it back and that's your front standard and you lock that in place and then you lift up the front standard and it's set the two standards are set on not on a monorail but on a flat bed and it's a bed that slides in and out and the whole thing folds flat and you can put it in your bag and some of them come with a ground glass cover mine has a, a, a door over the ground glass which also acts as a viewing hood uh, you could use this camera handheld i never have because it has a viewing hood I've never mastered, I never, I, I don't really see the point of using it handheld, but that's a, perhaps another story. So the, the the difference between the field camera and the monorail is that you can fold it down nicely, stick it in your backpack and um, take it up the mountain with you or just on holiday with you if your wife allows you to do so. Uh, you've still got the issue of tripods, of course, unless you're hand-holding. The uh, and uh, the disadvantages, well, they probably they don't have such a range of movements as a monorail camera. Many field cameras uh, have limited back movements. The front movements will always have uh, the ability to lift the front stand up or the, the lens board. That's called rise, and Simon touched on that. So you can use the rise function to move the horizon up and down in your image or if you're doing architecture it avoids it allows you to get the top of the building in and the bottom of the building in without tipping the camera up and looking at the, at the um at the building so the the front movements be a rise or shift and shift is where we're moving the front length the lens board in the standard to either the left or the right that's uh, uh, that's known as uh, um uh left shift or right shift and then you can also swing you'll be pleased to know 
So you can actually, instead of just um, there, you're, you're altering your, you're tilting the front lens board around maybe a central point, not always, but so you're, you're swinging the upright, the otherwise upright lens board to the left or the right. And that's also quite useful when trying to get things in focus that are running left to right or right to left across your plane of focus. So you're getting those sort of movements in a, in a field camera, but there are maybe not quite so extreme movements as you'd get on a view camera. But you nearly always, if you're using a field camera out in the field, you won't need those range of movements that you get necessarily in a, in a monorail camera. The back end of a field camera, the back standard, can be fixed, and it can. I have, I have a a, a camera, a field a four by five field camera, wooden one, where the back standard is completely fixed upright, and so there's no movement at all. With my Toyo, I can, I can lift the back up and down and swing and tilt. So I have movements on the back but they are limited. They're not massive, um, but they are there. So you have to think very carefully about what you want with a, with a view camera and, and how you're going to be using it. If you're going to photograph lots of tabletop work and you want you know, to get lots of things all in focus at the same time, then a monorail camera may be useful for you. But for most people, a field, a view, a field camera that folds flat and has a good range of movements is a, is a perfectly acceptable alternative I, I very rarely use rear movements rear movements can alter the perspective or of the image so if you wanted to make something look really big in the uh, uh, in in the image artificially big you can tilt the rear um, standard back I think and that makes I think that's the way I'll have to remind myself but I think tilting it back towards you sort of increases the in, alters the, the apparent perspective of what you're looking at and makes things appear bigger on the, on the screen but normally i'm just moving the front standard and very rarely touch the back and for most people that's fine well there's a i mean on field cameras there's a there's another type of camera that's very similar to a field camera uh, called the press camera yeah um in particular uh, let's talk about speed graphics so what, what's a, the main difference say between a, 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 a regular semi-modern uh, field camera and a, and a press camera like a speed graphic i think it's really down to uh, even fewer movements the very basic amount of movements on on the graphic cameras i don't think there's any at all on the backs uh, they'll have uh, may and who's who do i know who uses speed graphics I can't recall. I don't think they have any swing. I don't think you can swing the lens. You can maybe get rise and fall. I don't even know if they have any tilt, but they may have. But but I think it's very limited. So it's very limited on the movements, and they're designed to be handheld. So they were used by, as the name suggests, press photographers. They very often come with a, uh, a rangefinder that these days may or may not work and a viewing hood so you can either zone focus or you can try and focus using the rangefinder and you can handhold yeah so that's a press camera so but they look largely the same don't they if you look at a press camera yeah. and you look at a view camera 
the design is broadly the same, well, but it's really it's just lack of um, lack lack of movements. Well, there's a there's a a key difference that, that was that's in my mind because um, I mean my my Meridian uh, was sold as a press camera, but it's 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 not really a, a press camera. Um, it's uh, because it uses it's it's got the full range of movements, um, and it's actually a a um, replica of a a Linoff Technica camera. Mm -hmm. but it was but it was sold in in the American market as, as, a, as a press camera. Now uh, the most uh, well-known press cameras are the are the speed graphics and and you're absolutely right they, or the crown graphics well the crown graphics is probably closer to 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 the meridian but the the, the speed graphic the the big the reason why they don't have the rear movements is because they also have a focal plane shutter the speed graphic does yeah yeah and and that's that's i think that's probably along with the uh mpp micropress that they they're sort of unique in this 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 world a large format because it gives you two ways uh, to take the photograph, doesn't it? I say unique. Actually, I think they're probably some other designs as well. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to, uh, the MPP is the other is like the British version, I think, of this yeah. of the speed graphic and MPP cameras, micro precision. What does that stand for? Micro precision. I think two of those words are right. <laughs> yeah, can't think what the other P stands for. I want to say press, but it's probably yeah, not right. Yeah. It might be. They come in versions one to eight, I think, and most people go for seven or eight because I think they have more universal backs on the back, and we haven't even touched on things like graph lock backs, but there's a universal fitting called a graph lock, and I think MPP seven and eights have those. Um, I, I didn't know about the focal plane shutters on MPPs. I certainly knew that on... Um, on speed graphics as opposed to crown graphics you have a, a cloth shutter built into the back of the camera so that then would enable you to use a lens on your camera which doesn't have its own shutter because we haven't touched on that but what's common to most view cameras is that they have a large format lens is nearly always comes with its own built-in shutter and um, uh, if you have one of these press cameras that has a shutter built into the camera near the near the film, then you can use those older funky brass lenses that you can buy that um, all the hipsters like to use to get funky results. And instead of just putting your hat over the lens to control the exposure duration, you can use a shutter in the camera. That's right, isn't it, Simon? Yeah, it is. And the... the it's got a few advantages as well. I mean, that, the the fact that there were press cameras, as you say, they they're designed to be handheld. Uh, you've got a a, a greater, uh, generally speaking, a greater range of shutter speeds available to you. Because I think, um, I mean, I've got a baby a baby speed graphic, uh, mm. which which I bought off uh, eBay um, on the recommendation. Is that six by nine? Is that six by uh, nine? It, no, it's, it's at uh, three and a quarter. Oh, it's the odd size again. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, a Twitter a Twitter and uh, Instagram friend of mine, uh, Ben Reynolds, uh, said, oh, look at this. This is interesting. And uh, I thought, yeah, it is. And I, I bought it thinking I was buying a speed graphic, a full-size one, and then this little thing turned up I in the think face. It, I think it's quarter plate. If it's three and a quarter yeah. by four and a quarter, that's quarter plate. 
Yeah, but uh, but ultimately this 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 camera is not the camera I thought it was, but it, it's just a, a shrunken version of a speed graphic, and it's got a, a top shutter speed of a thousandth of a second, um, which and I think the uh, the the larger cameras also have that kind of shutter speed as well, which is obviously yeah particularly useful for um, for capturing yeah. fast fast movement. Yeah, I mean that's if you if you want to fool. Uh, that to 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 reference another podcast, Graham and Nick's homemade camera podcast. If you look at the episodes that talk about shutters, they they spend whole hours on different types of shutters. But effectively, what you're talking about with these with our large format lenses are um, leaf shutters, which sit close to the ideally, I think, as close to the sort of midpoint of the lens as possible i'm starting to get onto slightly shaky areas now no but no, you, no you're, you're absolutely right fortunately but, I, I listened to that uh, to that podcast yeah, very recently so it's still yeah. fresh in my mind and so it's it, rather than rather than the film being exposed as some kind of curtain moves over the film either horizontally or vertically you're getting exposure sort of all at once um, as this leaf like design opens up and closes and that, that, that there's it limits the functionality of the shutter to probably top end speeds of one five hundredths or four hundredths or something somewhere around there which is what you'll be used to if you're using twin lens reflex cameras quite typically that's where you get the same design of shutter you know um leaf shutters built in into the sort of lens assembly almost uh, and so with a large format lens you go and buy a large format lens you have you can buy the lens and that screws into the shutter, and then you have the back element of the lens screws into the into the shutter, and then that all fits into a lens board, which fits into the front standard. And lenses confuse the heck out of people, I think, when it comes to large format photography. Well, lenses is is, is um, well, it's a particular interest of of mine. I'm obsessed by lenses. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it's. It's it's probably worth mentioning about focal lengths, and mm. um, because uh, the focal length of a, of, of the of, of any camera is uh, is going to be determined by the, the the sensor or the film size that is that, that is used. Especially if you say a standard lens or a normal lens, mm. uh, which in thirty five millimeter terms or full frame terms is fifty millimeter. Um, yep. Whereas if you go smaller than that size um if you go to APS-C uh, standard lenses probably approximately about 35 millimeters and then you get down to micro four thirds where standard lens is 25 millimeters what on earth are you talking about yeah. what's all this micro four thirds nonsense yeah. there will there will be some people out there that will understand that term um but so that's so that's when you're you're uh well micro four thirds that's more or less the same as 110 in film so that that you'll, perhaps, you, you'll understand that a bit better perhaps um but, you know i've heard you talk about micro four thirds so much not you so much because you're you're the analog focused member of your uh, that, that, that's right, lenses yeah, team. Yeah. But your your two Carl, Carl and Johnny, your two digital compadres, they they talk about uh, micro four thirds a lot, and none of you have ever explained it to me as a non digital person. So I thank you for that. <laughs> okay, well it's uh... for putting it in, for putting it in analog terms for me, unlike your digital friends. 
Well, that's it. That that that's it. I uh, I am the most analog focused person on there. Even though Johnny hardly takes anything with digital whatsoever, um, it's it's been acknowledged by M from Emulsive, who is um, well. Let's let's when when M says something, we 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 pretty much have to go along with it, don't we? Because he knows everything. Um, he does as, as about film. Yeah. Um, so uh, so anyway. Um, on the micro four thirds and all, which is one ten kind of size film, a standard lens is about 20, is twenty five millimeters, fifty millimeters on full frame. Um, but when you go larger uh, than than that, um, say you go to medium format and say uh, Hasselblad at six by six on medium format is the standard lens is eighty millimeters, um, and then four by five is somewhere it gets a bit vague doesn't it the larger you get because yeah because you're One, at 150 it. is an easy way because that's like three times the size of 35 mil i mean 50 times three is exactly so you can you can use that yeah. as a guide i mean you can then you, you can go to like 135 to 150 can't you to yeah. and say that they're they're normal lenses well in fact um 135 to 180 people would use you know uh, yeah. as as their standards yeah. I have I have a 150, which was the first. It came. It was a 150 Schneider lens f 5.6 that came mounted into um, a, a Sinar lens board for my Sinar camera. So that was, and I still have that lens. But the Sinar lens board is quite a bit bigger than any of the more common ones that you would find, like on the Intrepid camera or your um, camera dactyl or uh, Toyos and things like that. There's two or three different sizes of lens boards which we can talk about, but uh, so I have my 150 lens, which is quotes normal, and I have a 90 millimeter lens, which is um, probably equivalent to about 28 millimeter in 35 millimeter times, and then I have a 210, which is maybe about 70 or something like that, and that's my selection. Yeah, and, and then you go 10 by 8. Mm. Um, and you're looking at around about 300 is 300 where, where, yeah. where, you, where you're at um, so i guess you could you could have a um uh you, you could have a if you wanted to shoot between four by five and eight by ten and you had for instance a 210 millimeter lens that would give you a uh, roughly the equivalent of 28 mil on so it's quite a wide angle on 35 mil and on a on a four by five, it would give you slightly telephoto. So if you just wanted to buy one lens, you could buy either two fifty, which is about thirty five mil on eight by ten, and it gives you a nice telephoto effect on four by five. So you know you could hop between formats with one lens. You know suddenly a a one fifty mil lens on an eight by ten camera becomes you know sort of twenty millimeter twenty five. So one fifty becomes insanely wide. On an eight by ten, and normal on a four by five. Now, I I think we should we we need to talk about coverage, don't we? Because probably, yeah. Because otherwise, there are going to be people uh, maybe thinking, "Oh, I'll just get myself this uh, this two hundred and ten millimeter lens," whereas actually mm. that actually might have been designed for a four yes. by five. That's true. Yes, that's a very good point. In order, I'm quoting now on something that I highlighted earlier, in order to use a lens on a view camera, the lens must project an image circle that is at least as large as the diagonal measurement of the film. For example, the diagonal measurement of a piece of 4 by 5 film is 6.4 inches or 162 millimetres. So the 
the measurement from corner to corner on the long, well, invariably it'd be the long corner, that's the only corner there is, 162 millimeters. Consequently, any lens used on a 4x5 camera for general outdoor work must project an image circle with a diameter of at least 6.4 inches or 162 millimeters. And you can find that information by doing a bit of Googling, I would think. Wouldn't you, Simon? Um, well, well, this is, this, well, yes, yes, yes and no. I, I think, uh, I think, I, I don't know if this, this, this is, this is true or not, but I think certain uh, focal lengths are probably connected to the um, size of the film that they, they're actually designed for, much in the same way as, you know, an 80 millimeter is, you see an 80 millimeter lens and you see it's a big lens and you know it's for something like a six by six camera. You, you, yes. you know that that's going to be, uh, the standard length on uh, um, on six by six and eighty millimeters is an odd focal length. If you if you're talking um, thirty five millimeters, you know, you just, I don't know if there are any eighty millimeter lenses for for that. So I just I just wonder if like say one hundred and fifty millimeters is a, is an odd length in terms of um, certainly in terms of thirty five millimeters. You do get. Um, I think if you if you go onto eBay, if you're starting out and we're at the risk of confusing folks, if you go onto eBay or some other or Simon's, uh, it's Fozzy, <laughs> some some person who sells lenses online, and you see a, a one fifty millimeter lens in a in a lens board, which says something like Linhoff Technica, which is and that's the same size as a Wister board, um, that that's the lens that fits in say your Intrepid camera. That 150 millimeter lens, if it's from one of the makers like Schneider um, or um, a Fuji, for instance, there are two that would come up regularly. You will have no trouble at all with the image circle for your 4x5 camera. Certainly on the range of movements that you get, something like an Intrepid, uh, you, you can put it onto your view, onto your monorail camera, and you may well start to see... Um, uh, some issues but then it's probably not because you're compensating for it by moving the back around and doing things so but i think largely the uh, if you see a 150 millimeter lens and it says it's mounted in a toyo lens board or a, a Sinar or, uh, or, or 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 a linhoff that's almost certainly designed to fit in a four by five camera and if you if you put it into your if you have an eight by ten camera and put it in you it may come or it may not well that's that's the other thing I mean, when you actually get uh, if you pick up a lens that doesn't have a lens board mm. um and i've got a, a a couple of lenses that that, that certainly applies to yeah um, and I, would you i don't know we haven't asked i haven't asked you this question before but would you actually know how to how to work out the the coverage other than because you can you can obviously mount mount the lens on your on your view camera which you can that's one of the beauties of it you can just mount mount, mount anything um, yeah the, the problem is especially with the slower lenses um and and the the ground glass screen anyway on view cameras just tends to be a little bit uh, dim Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly with this if you if you put a slow lens on there you might not actually be able to particularly easily see what's going on in the corners and you might be there thinking well this isn't mm. covering the corners well actually it is but you're just not really seeing it very well is there is there a standard way of actually working out the 
the coverage can you project a light through and and see the image circle on a piece of paper if it's held at a certain distance away from the from the paper that that kind of stuff gray graham or nick would almost certainly be able to answer you and the answer is i don't know is yeah. the truth because I, I haven't played around enough to to you know i, I bought i bought three lenses uh, a, a 150 a 210 and a 90 and i was pretty comfortable that they'd all be perfectly fine on my four by five um I, th I think i'd probably turn to the forums and the facebook groups for you know, to, to ask some of those questions uh, you know and folks out there you know the couple of people that may be listening to this if you've got experience in, in what simon's asking then you know get it let's get a bit of discussion going because i i don't know i'm sure the answer will be revealed as we get different people on and we start interacting with folks on the facebook group yeah. but i'm sure you must be able to yeah, because I have a Fuji F8 90 millimeter, and you, you, the difference between F8 and F5.6 wide open when you're when you're trying to look into the corners and see if it's focusing properly or not is is F8 can be quite dim, you know, if it's not yeah. really bright lights, and if you're using your camera inside, it's even harder to see. So if you've got a lens that you're unsure about. It's not always easy to tell right into the corners. I think there is, isn't there a way, isn't there a way, Simon, though, if you, yes, I know what it is. Many cameras have those little cutouts on the corner. Is that not it? You know, the little cutouts on the glass. I've, I've got that on the, on the sign up, not, not on my yeah. Meridian. No, I had it on my sign up. Now, I think the idea there is that you look, you put your head to one side and you look through those little cutouts. And if you can see effectively the lens getting in the way you know you're not getting coverage right to the corners oh, that's, that's okay that that's partly those little cutouts are partly for that reason i think mainly for that reason some people think that's to let air out as you compress the, the bellows i'm not so sure about that yeah. but i think they were designed really to check coverage so that's if you if you have ground glass with those little corners cut out please don't shout at me if i've got this wrong but i'm pretty <laughs> certain that that's one way. If you if you're using movements, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I'm right. If you're using movements on your camera, um, with my with my uh, 5.6 lenses, which is my 210 Schneider and my 150 uh, wide open, I can normally see when I'm starting to lose coverage because if I'm if I'm lifting the lens, if I'm lifting lifting the lens front lens board up too high, then I'm starting to see shadows appearing in the bottom, um, and I can see that quite clearly. But I don't, my Toyo, I don't think has cutouts on there. Um, but I'm sure that's what they're designed for. You peer through those and you move your head at a certain angle. And if you can see the lens, you know you're not getting coverage. Right, so so that's, that's maybe one way. Well, yeah, it, it, it does, does make sense. I mean, I suppose I could also um, set up a very bright light um, and just have, that, have the camera yeah directly you, well that'll it. help you because at least you can then see a bit more can't you yeah. by moving your head around underneath yeah and the and the, the complete the, yeah the the foolproof method would obviously be to take a photograph yeah now happened. when we get my my mate graham vasey he's going to come on the show at some point and i know he was telling me he was out shooting with his i was out shooting with him large format last year sometime and he was telling me about a lens that he'd bought and everyone had told him that it wouldn't be good enough for four by five and he says it's perfectly adequate. Now, it may be that as soon as he puts some movements on his 
front standard he starts losing coverage i don't know but uh, graham if you're listening um, what do you know about coverage of lenses and using lenses that you shouldn't do there's a there's another thing that's uh, popped up into my mind as well when we're talking about uh, film sizes and camera sizes and stuff like that uh, and this goes back to a couple of weeks ago now on the uh, back in paper uh, podcast uh, which is the um, bit on the side for the Sunday 16 podcast yep and uh, Martin Scarland uh, wrote in and he was uh, actually his his actually I, I wrote an email in uh, moaning about the way that Graham did the music on on this uh, podcast and uh, it was then followed by uh, Martin Scarland moaning uh, to to Graham about something else and uh, and what he was moaning about was uh, the terminology of four by five and five by four and ten by eight and eight by ten and. I've noticed in this podcast you're doing something that I I do um, because I I talk I say four by five and I say ten by eight and I probably say seven by five, um, but it's it's this British versus American thing, uh, whereas uh, over here we we do things correctly of course uh, by doing the generally speaking by doing the larger number first and then followed by the second one. Um, I don't know if that's because we're more interested in length and thickness. So I don't know, but uh, I noticed with four by five, um, I'd never say five by four. And, no, uh, I don't. No, I say four by five. Yeah, and I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do. You, that's, I've, you, you definitely have done, and I'm, I, I do the same. So, um, for those, I just wanted to say for for people like Martin who are getting increasingly annoyed by us saying uh, mix, or mix, mix now or uh, our definitions. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just one of those things, and uh, I'm, yeah. So I'm not. <laughs> I'm not at all sorry. Some, say what you want. It doesn't matter. As long as you understand. We don't aim to confuse. If we say four by five or five by four, most of us are so Americanized these days. You spend, Simon, you spend all your time speaking with Americans on your podcast, and I have Corey, so he gets things completely wrong all the time. But you invari invariably end up, you know, like your kids, you know, they come home from school, or they did when mine were at school, and they're picking up all these American terms, and it's just invading our terminology, and we can't help it. It is, it is quite sweet at times when, uh, when Johnny and uh, Carl uh, att attempt to say things in an anglicised way. So, uh, but there, there are there are limits to uh, what they do. They they won't say aluminium, for instance. Uh, they they no. insist on saying aluminium mm. and, and and stuff like that. And, and we've had lots of in, we've had lots of funny exchanges recently with American guests on the Lensless podcast. Simon, I found something here that might be helpful. This is on on wide angle lenses. In, in use on different formats. Uh, it says here, and uh, just to for folks listening, the, the book that Simon and I have, which sends us both to sleep at evenings, is the book called Using the View Camera, A Creative Guide to Large Format Photography by Steve Simmons. And I picked up an old copy of this for not very much money fairly recently. And it's, it's pretty informative, you know, in a sort of textbooky way. Uh, and it just goes to show that I haven't read it, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of reading it as I'm listening to Simon Whittle on in the background. Um, it says here, the moderate wide-angle category is the place to start when buying a wide-angle lens. For example, the 90mm lens for a 4x5 camera is a very popular and useful lens, and it is the favourite of many architectural photographers. It can also be applied in landscape work and possibly in some environmental portraiture and in industrial photography. Severe wide angle lenses such as the 75 millimeter 
65 and 58 lenses on a 4x5 camera are special application lenses that aren't used by most view camera photographers. The 65 and, well, I think there's quite a few people using them. The 65 and 58 lenses will allow for only minimal movements on a 4x5. Less than the 75, um, but their extreme wide view can be very useful. So on a 4x5 camera, most 65 and 58s will give you limited movement because the image circle is only just about covering the diagonal corners of the film. Photographers, I uh, mentioned 8x10 somewhere, yeah. The widest lenses that can be used at infinity with the 8x10 format, um, and this book references Nikon 120mm lens, wow, okay. And the new version 120 seems awfully wide. Uh, and the Schneider 121 Super Angulon with a 110 degree angle of coverage. Both lenses will cover the 8x10 film area. But I think I thought I was I thought what I was reading was going to be more helpful than it's turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry. Okay. But be careful in Google, I think, and ask some wise people that clearly aren't me or Simon. Yeah, well, and I think that's always a good thing to do with anything where you're, you're buying something that you're getting into a subject. Uh, there are lots of people um, around that know the answer, um, yes. and you can be. Uh, impulsive like me and pull the trigger on buying a, <laughs> buying a camera um, because it looked right and find that it's a scale model um, of what I actually <laughs> wanted. Um, so I could have asked the yeah. question first. Folks, we, don't, we, on. we don't uh, we don't claim to be the world's expert in this. Uh, we we hope we can bring some enthusiasm and and we hope we can bring a platform for discussion about large format photography. Um, but you know, fire away your questions, fire away your questions to the podcast, um, send us an email, which maybe Simon will give out at the end. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to give it out now oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's, uh, because you didn't know this. Um, no, I didn't we, know we had an email address. Yeah, we do have an email address and, uh, uh, it's a long one, I'm afraid. Um, I wanted to do LFPP, uh, but LFPP is gone. Um, so I'm afraid it, it's it's the full version of the uh, the name oh, of the dear. podcast. So it's large it? format photography podcast at gmail dot com. Um, mm. and, and much in the same way as on the classic lenses podcast, uh, any letters, emails, or sorry that will come in, I will ask Andrew to read them because uh, I'm not very good at that kind of thing. Large format photography podcast dot com is our email address. Almost. It's large oh. format photography podcast at gmail.com. Oh. Sorry, yes, a website, isn't it? At gmail. Yeah. And funnily enough, we do actually Dot have com. that as a uh, a web address. I've uh, I've saved that just in case somebody's going to hold us to ransom at a later date when when the uh, domain is is worth millions. Um, <laughs> we've we've bagged that. So we'll, we'll, it's at some point in the future we will have a website out there. Um, and actually, on the subject of talking to us and things like that, that's only one way uh, to, to get in touch with us because you can also correspond with us and chat with us in our Facebook group, um, which, again, is called the Large Format Photography Podcast. Um, so uh, if you search on Facebook, you can, you can find us there. And that's, that's probably the, uh, um, the most active way of uh, getting in touch with us. And it'd be great if you could join us and... Uh, share your photographs and your thoughts and give me advice. <laughs> well, there's already a, a, a great guy who's part of our Facebook group. He's, 
I've known him on the forums for a, a long time, and I'll, I'll just call him Sandy, but it's actually San Sandhide Lynch, is it? I, I never quite know how to pronounce his name, but I think his um, his friends might call him Sandy. Uh, I don't profess to be a friend, but I think it's Sandy, uh, and he's on our group, and he he is a wealth of S A N D E H A Sandhide Lynch, and he's um, he's a great guy. Maybe we can persuade him to come on at some point because he. He makes Bella. I remember, you know, watching him make Bellows years ago. He makes pinhole cameras. He modifies cameras. His theoretical and practical knowledge is enormous. So, um, Sandy, if I can call you Sandy, um, come on and correct us. You know, he's he's a great guy. It, there was somebody asking a, a technical question the other day, and I just mentioned his name, and he. Uh, he he gave a lot of detail that that may have been on the lensless site or it may have been on our new uh, large format site I can't recall, but we get folks caliber with his, folks with his caliber of knowledge is just going to be uh, brilliant to have to to be able to tap into. So ignore us because we know nothing. <laughs> We're but, just here yeah. to learn. That's a whole that's a whole premise of the, of the podcast is for us both to learn. Me more yes. than you perhaps. Well, no, I've clearly got a long way to go as well. Um, okay, so uh, winding things down now, uh, which I think we've been doing now for the last five minutes. Um, if uh, if any of you um, have enjoyed this podcast and uh, want to help support future episodes and things like that, uh, we there is a way that you can do that. Uh, we have a uh, coffee account, uh, which is ko-fi uh, coffee.com. And if you just go on there and you search for guess what it's the large format photography podcast uh, where we have a page there uh, if you wish to um, make a small donation to us it, it will be very very welcome because that will help us with um, things like hosting costs and other little projects that we uh, may do going forward so uh, but there's zero obligation to do that we we you've still got your eye, you've got your eye on some quite new nice new kit haven't you Simon? <laughs> <laughs> is that what you want it for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, get get Simon an intrepid fund. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see that happening. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there are, there are costs involved in, in, in a podcast. And, um, yeah, and it's... I don't enough. come cheap. My consultancy fees are enormous. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, finishing things off, um, Andrew, where, mm. other than listening to us here... Um, yeah. How can people follow you? They can follow me generally on Twitter at Warboys Snapper. Uh, Warboys being the village where I live. W a r b o y s. You can find me there. I you can if you want to see some groups of images. Images. I have a WordPress account which is andrewbartram.wordpress maybe something like that. If you Google that, you'll find me. And that's where I try and put more considered series of images out with some words. And I'm on Instagram in two places, Warboy Snapper and Warboy Snapper underscore pinholes. And the much maligned, but as far as I'm concerned, much loved Flickr um, site. I'm also there as Warboy Snapper, I think. And you, you can be heard every week as well, can't you? Yeah, I didn't want to push that too much. You know, people are sick of my voice. Um, on the let, we have the me and Corey Cannon host the Lensless podcast weekly, 
which is coming up to show 51 this week. So it's getting exciting as we close in on our birthday. Yeah. And, and of course, you can take pinholes with large formats. As I do. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I can be found in a few places. I do have a Flickr account, but I, I'm sort of locked out of it at the moment because, as as we know, or many of us know, uh, if you're over a thousand images, then you've got to start paying for it. And I haven't started yeah. paying for it. And uh, I, I saw you chatting about it the other day, Andrew. I think you've decided that you're going to do it, aren't you? I've done it now, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it looks like I'm going to be... You know, begrudgingly uh, going to do that as well. I wish it would just give you another option, a, a cheaper option or something like that. But it's uh, mm -hmm. you know it's a big, it's a big jump from nothing to fifty pounds or very close to it. Um, actually, and that's another point. It's virtually this, it's almost the same in pounds as it is in dollars. So that that's, that's I know that, yeah. that really is annoying, and I think that's probably my biggest annoyance actually. But there you go. Um, do it while you can, <laughs> I suppose, uh, with the way the pound's going well, at the moment. Do it before the end of the month because it might get worse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I, you can see my photos there. there are, there's very little in the way of large format on there. It's mainly, well, it's actually it's mainly digital, actually, but there's a, a few film things up there and a few bits of digital stuff. Um, I'm a host of the Classic Lenses podcast, as we've mentioned earlier, which is a podcast that goes and out. And just weekly. remind me, you're the analog one, aren't you? Out of I am the most analog person on that show, uh, yeah. which is defined not because I take more analog photographs; it's just because it's 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 in my bones, and uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm everything's new and exciting to me at the moment. Whereas uh, Johnny, who who thought he was the most analog analog focused person who only pretty much takes analog photography. He's just been doing it for so long, it almost doesn't matter anymore. You're like the puppy who's always trying to shag your leg, aren't you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something on those lines, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, so that, that's, that's, that's my once a week thing. Um, I have a, a website with, which is not going to be a particularly interest to large format people, uh, uh, which is simonforsterphotographic.co.uk, uh, where I sell... Um, bits and bobs there's not actually that much on there at the moment so i'm uh, going through a, a change of stock at the moment um as mentioned earlier i also have a facebook group uh, not facebook group a uh, ebay page uh, which is it's fozzy um where i sell the second hand gear um again do you have any large format stuff on there no and that's there's, a, there's probably a good reason for that. And any large format stuff that heads my way, it doesn't it doesn't make it <laughs> off for sale. Yeah, so uh, I'm growing my large format at the moment. Oh, okay. when, when I start getting duplicates of things, then yeah. then, then then maybe. Uh, but um, at, the, at this moment, uh, I've I have this pretty random and eclectic collection of uh, large format stuff, um, which some of it goes together, some of it doesn't, but I know that one day it will, and I wish I've, I'll be glad I've got it, uh, which is, I think, the reason why that Sinar F2 is still sit sitting there looking at me, uh, waiting to be used rather than waiting to be sold. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Instagram uh, as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Twitter as Simon4, um, and uh, that's pretty much it apart from i also want to say thank you to kevin mcleod of incompetech.com for the music uh, which is called two finger johnny um, <laughs> with, um, so. graham much loved by graham of the of uh, sunny 16 yeah, yeah. He, I, 
Graham loves a bit of two finger Johnny, so we understand. Yeah, yeah, he hadn't actually heard it yet. So, uh, <laughs> um, yes, uh, actually, Graham actually did actually say on Twitter uh, when he heard about the two I was making this podcast that uh, it was he, he he was saying is the an equivalent of. Um, um, pre-ordering, uh, which is actually pre-unsubscribing uh, to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. He, he probably won't make it this. He's way. a lovely chap. Yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> actually, he's 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 interesting because uh, when you when you talk to him offline, he's the nicest person on the planet. And then uh, you you get his alter ego as soon as he gets in front of a microphone, where he's, he's <laughs> as a dig at everybody. Um, okay, so. Um, uh, I don't know if you've, I haven't thought of any shout outs. Have you got any shout outs you want to say? We've we've uh, name dropped a lot of people this week, actually. Yeah, I've spoken about a couple of people, two or three people, haven't I? San Sandy Helinch, who's just posted on our Facebook group about Shellac. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, um, obviously, we can get him on to talk about Shellac and other things. Yeah. Uh, Gra Graham and, uh, and Steve Sigsby, guys I think I mentioned online. Uh, and I've just I just remembered there's uh, for those people quick enough to actually listen to this and act upon it. Um, the two of us are actually going to meet in real life uh, on the 16th of uh, of uh, this month, uh, which is mm. March, at the yep. NEC, where there's a, um, a the quote is a mega photography analog meetup or something on those lines. Um, and there are lots of people there. So uh, the guys from uh, Sun 16 are going to be there. We're there. And lots of other famous people as well. Um, so, uh, I think <laughs> infamous in some cases. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, and Jeremy North. And Jeremy North, yes. Um, I think he's actually. I wonder if he's like the twin brother of Graham. Actually, because they've got a similar kind of. Uh, um, you, know, you talk to them offline, and they're the nicest people on earth. And then, uh, but they're inc incredibly. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't going to say. It. But funny enough, they've never been seen in the same place at the same time. So yeah, we'll yeah. see. So, so, so that's a that's a get together, um, and I think the idea is to to meet uh, in the foyer area, just inside where you 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 inside yes, the with, area with the with the Darth Vader's and Ninja Turtles and Manga Girls. Yeah, that's where we'll be hanging out. That's it. Next to, next to them, well, it's Comcon yes. or whatever it's called. Next next door, it isn't. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that's actually a good reason to take your camera. There's been a. I know you're trying to wrap this up, but this is this is dreadful, isn't it? But you started it, so you can take your camera to. Where there's a bit of a debate on one of the Facebook groups, I think, about whether you should take a camera. You start. You started it by writing that excellent worded article, didn't you, Simon, about dress code in 35 MOC? Yes, yes, yes. That was an excellent article, and Carl, I think, said, "Why are you bothering taking photos when you can write so well?" And it was an extremely well written piece, and couple of people said you shouldn't take a camera but I think you should take a camera with a flash on and have a bit of fun because there's plenty of opportunities to do flash portraits uh, with you standing other folks standing next to you know, um, stormtroopers and wookies and goodness knows what yeah makes sense and so if you want to you can get a picture of Graham Jago standing next to a wookie <laughs> and then have a caption competition yeah yeah um, okay, I think on on, on that image uh, we sh we shall wrap things up. Um, so, um, th th thank you, Andrew, for, for being with me through this uh, th this episode. Um, it's been a blast. Yeah, and uh, I hope we haven't put too many people off. Uh, uh, and next time it will have a guest, so it won't be just the two of us uh, talking nonsense. 
um, and they'll pro- we'll probably have a guest every every episode anyway uh, from from this point onwards. Um, so that will be in roughly a month. We, we haven't entirely decided how I was going to work out, but it's certainly going to be uh, once a month, maybe maybe less more often. But once a month is pretty much where we're at. We haven't even decided what day the, the podcast even goes out on yet. So uh, uh, and that might change as well. So it's going to be an as and when, um, and it'd be great if you can join us next time. So thank you and goodbye.